0: Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here by myself tonight. Um, As noted before, Sean is on a sabbatical uh, while he works on his seminary training um, at CBTS. Um, So it'll just be me this week. Um, And hopefully my space heater isn't annoying. Um, It's really, it is loud for me. I don't know if it's going to pick up on the recording, but it is what it is. Um, it's very cold in my basement. It is 21 degrees here in Manassas, Virginia. My basement's cold, um, so I'm going to keep the heater on right now as I'm, uh, it gets nippy down here. Um, so, yeah, we're going to start off talking about some things uh, with philosophy. We're going to talk about Ecclesiastes 12, Proverbs a little bit. Um, I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, it's, our podcast is coming up on two years. I think May will be two years. We started in 2020, um, so it's wow. It, it just feels weird that uh, we've been doing this for almost two years. It's um, it's been fun. It's neat. We've had some really neat opportunities. I think one of the uh, the best things about doing a podcast like this is that you have the opportunity to meet some really neat people in the space. You know, we've had uh, men like Doctor Dolesaw. We've had uh, Dr. Barcellus. we've had uh, Dr. Um, Tom Nettles. Uh, I'm sorry, Tom Nettles. Uh, Tom Hicks on the show. Um, you know, we've had good brothers on the show, and you get to meet some. Uh, you get to meet really neat people in the space and interact with uh, godly men. So it's been it's been fun. So I think we're coming up we're coming up on two years. So it's been a fun ride. Um, but with that. Uh, I'm, we're going to dive right into our topic this evening. This is just going to be a short devotional. Um, not going, hopefully, not going to be as long as we normally do it. Um, but this is more of a devotional um, that we're going to be doing by talking about a little bit about what is biblical philosophy um, in as found in the wisdom literature of Scripture. So, what is Scripture's philosophy? Now the the word philosophy and its concepts and concepts surrounding it have really come under attack lately. Uh, we've seen it attacked around the topic of the doctrine of God, especially uh, the concept of you know Greek philosophy or philosophy really as a an overall concept has come under attack, um, and I think that the concept as a whole is a taboo issue in evangelical circles. Philosophy is seen as this uh, evil thing that we have to avoid, and we just need our Bibles. We just need Christianity. Philosophy is something to just leave behind. Um, So there's this dichotomy that's presented between philosophy and scripture, and this is a false dilemma uh, and one that should be rejected by fair-minded Christians who are seeking to be truthful. Uh, It needs to be rejected, Philosophy is not a concept in and of itself that is problematic uh, in Scripture. And in fact, the Bible employs philosophy as it relates to life. There's a philosophy of life, how we're to live, how we're to think, especially in relation to the things of this world. Um, there's, And this is what we see in the concept of wisdom as found in the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We see this biblical philosophy Laid out on, you know, things such as uh, work, not being lazy, not being consumed with things of this world, watching who your friends are, you know, who you hang out with, who your or close friends are at least, you know, things like that that have basic practical implications for daily life. But those are all tied around a central philosophical framework that is wisdom, right? There's this concept of wisdom that we see very much pushed in the Proverbs. Um, it, we see it in Ecclesiastes as well, but Proverbs kind of lays out the contrast, I think, more clearly. And we see this early on in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that the contrast between the one who is wise, right? And, the one who is foolish is laid out immediately. And this is the dichotomy that you see, excuse me, that you see in Proverbs, what the wise person does and what the foolish person does. This is a concept that is commonly found in that book. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with someone's mental capacity, right? From a physical standpoint or a medical standpoint, but it's the spiritual foolishness. It's this spiritual state that this person is in. Their mindset is one that is foolish. It's one that is devoid of uh, having a proper understanding of what it means to obey God and follow his word. John Gill, in his, in his Bible commentary, in talking about this very verse from Proverbs, says this, quote, unless a man who knows God knows God in Christ and worships him in his fear, in spirit and in truth, this is alluding to John 4, according to his revealed will, he knows nothing as he ought to know, and all his knowledge will be of no avail and profit to him. This is the first and chief thing in spiritual and evangelical knowledge, and without which all natural knowledge will signify nothing, End quote. So from a spiritual standpoint, this is, you know, literal stupidity. Again, this isn't a mental incapacity, it's a spiritual incapacity, so to speak. It's spiritual stupidity. Um, Lately, or recently at least, I've been trying to teach my two oldest ones that um, the word stupid isn't always inappropriate. Now, there is a time to utilize it from a biblical point of view, because it's the language that the scriptures use to describe those who are doing sinful things, right? It's the very words of Scripture. It's the very concepts of Scripture. Uh, For instance, Proverbs 10, 13 says, Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Or it could also be translated, lacks sense, right? It's sensible to do that which is wise. It's sensible from a spiritual standpoint to do that which is good, wise, i.e., pleasing to God what is honoring to God. But it's stupid and foolish. It's a lacking of sense to do that, which is evil. Ergo, the rod is for the back of those people who do things that are stupid. They do sinful things, foolish things, right? Proverbs 12.1 even utilizes the word stupid expressly. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Right? So it's this concept of of foolishness. It's one who rejects that which is good and right and biblical as defined by God. And it carries this idea of brutishness or acting like an animal, right? It's stupid. It's foolish. It's something that, I I guess, from a, a biblical standpoint would boggle the mind, because why would somebody do something so stupid as to follow that which is evil? Uh, well it is foolishness it's stupidity in a sense um, so yeah so this is the context that we find ourselves in as we move into the book of Ecclesiastes um, that there is this fundamental philosophical framework that the bible has us moving from in in every aspect of our life and how we live and how we walk and how we handle our finances and how we, treat our spouses and how we raise our children. There is this fundamental philosophical framework that we live from, that everything flows from, and this is obeying and honoring God. This is true wisdom, right? So we this in and of itself is a philosophical framework. It is philosophical inherently. There is a built-in philosophy in the scriptures that we move uh, and apply in other areas of our life. So there's there's no room for these ideas in the Bible against philosophy as a concept, um, but we need to have the proper understanding of philosophy in order to apply these things correctly. And yes, there are philosophies that we are to reject. There are philosophies that we are to reject, and Paul talks about this very clearly uh, in the New Testament. Colossians 2, eight. Uh, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Again, Paul is not saying that uh, philosophy is bad. He's not. Notice what he says. He says, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to christ so he's qualifying what he's saying to reject he's qualifying that what is to be rejected is unbiblical philosophy philosophy that does not comport with the scriptures that's what to that is what is to be rejected okay we have to guard ourselves against that and clearly paulus ultimately has a specific concept in mind uh, when he's talking about the Colossians, he's probably talking more specifically about a particular type of philosophy, but the principle is there, that we're not to be held with strange philosophies, but that our ground is to be in those things that are according to Christ, and that would expand beyond what Paul is simply talking about here in context, because that principle uh, is comes before the actual issue that he's addressing. It's grounded in something greater, so it applies to other things. Um, but the important thing is that Paul is saying that there are things that reject, but the implicit uh, converse of that is that there are philosophies that we can accept, right? He's giving a condition by which to reject uh, philosoph- certain philosophies. Another place, 1 Corinthians 3.19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Again, it's the world's understanding of wisdom that is to be rejected, and and this is foolishness to God. And it's probably the same concept that's found in Proverbs that would comport and be consistent with Scripture in terms of the concept of wisdom in the in the Bible. Uh, and Paul certainly when he's thinking of the scriptures is ultimately thinking about the old Testament. So it would make sense that wisdom in this context is the same concept of wisdom found in Proverbs. But the sum of the matter is that God does not forbid philosophy as a concept and practice in scripture. It's how we use those things that matters. Right. And that's really where the issue lies. There tends to be this, this nuclear concept of let's just, blow away philosophy as a concept and all we need is the bible um and and that's a that's what we would call in in logic a false dichotomy you're creating a false dilemma these you're creating two options that really uh you're creating a dilemma where you're only creating two possibilities uh when there could be a third viable option so we have to be very careful not to fall into those kind of those kind of traps as we're uh, interpreting the scriptures, as we're applying these things in our daily lives. Um, and that really gives us the framework to dive into the core passage that we're going to talk about here in Ecclesiastes 12. The book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is really taking the concepts found in Proverbs. And I'm not, I, I don't know which one was written first, but the concepts, excuse me, the concepts you find in Proverbs are certainly there in Ecclesiastes. Uh, with what does it mean to live in a wise way? But let's—we're going to go through the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes. Not going to be long; it's not a long chapter, um, and I'm really going to be doing this more in summary than anything else. But I think it's good that we we go through this. There's a lot of concepts here that we can apply. So the first, and, and I think this is a pretty famous line from uh, Ecclesiastes. But we'll start at verse one remember your creator in the days of your youth so right off the bat in ecclesiastes 12 recall to remember our creator right there is a direct correlation in scripture between what we know and what we do right we must know and ascertain our knowledge of god as it's taught to us right we must understand and grasp these things in the mind of who god is we're to remember our Creator, we're to recall Him, because our knowledge of God does affect how we act, right? And and it's very interesting that the writer of Ecclesiastes starts off with this concept of your knowledge of God. Remember God. Remember who He is. Put Him in your mind. And then he talks about what you're to do, how you're to apply this knowledge. Remember Him, and then you're going to do something, right? That's very important to remember. There's a direct correlation between those things, and this isn't remembering just any god. This isn't remembering, you know, the sun, the uh, Egyptian god Ra, or the Greek uh, or any of the Greek or Roman gods like Zeus or anything like that, or Athena. This is the God of Scripture, as revealed in the Scriptures. This is Yahweh or Jehovah or The great I am is found in in Exodus 3.14, and he is the basis for all that we do. We're to remember him, right? We're to remember him and and recall the one true God of the Bible. That's what we are to recall. And the writer also says that we're to recall him in our youth, right? In our youth. um. Serving God at a young age is a great blessing and can be very impactful later on in life, and I think certainly will be if we carry on and persevere. If if uh, those of us who are young who are, you know, recalling these things and and living for Him, um, there are definitely advantages to that. If we are recalling our Creator in the days of our youth before we've had the chance to live sinful lives or build up sinful habits, it's much harder to kill those sinful habits. Uh, than ter- when you're turning from, you know, recalling your creator or, or living a life that is pleasing to God, you know, after you've li- maybe lived a sinful life for quite a while, it's much harder to put to death those habits than if you're living for God at a much younger age. Um, so this, I think, is to, and I'm not saying that to come across as as um you know, as a young person coming across as haughty or arrogant. Um, but I think that there is an importance here, and and certainly there can be, an, there's certainly an advantage to that. Um, I think spiritually speaking, but I think there's an urgency being placed here by the. Um, by the writer of Ecclesiastes, that we're to follow God as soon as possible. We're not to delay, right? Don't wait until you've lived an, an empty, vain life to come to the Lord and remembering your Creator and living wisely. Do it while you're young. Do it now, right? I think that's what the emphasis is here. Follow God as soon as possible without delay. It's like the book of Hebrews says, right? There, uh, Today is the day of salvation, right? Not tomorrow, not next week, not 50 years from now, today, right? There's an urgency here. And I think that's really what, um, at least in part, is in mind of the writer here. There's an urgency that is needed here. Now we remember our Creator in the days of our youth. Now, go moving on in Ecclesiastes. It says, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I, I have no pleasure in them while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height. And if terror is in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden, the desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loose, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity." Again, I think there is an emphasis here that we are to seek God urgently, right? Don't wait until you've lived a, a full life in this world according to the world's standards of what it means to uh, live well to turn to God, right? Life is going to move on, and there, won't come a, there will come a time when we won't have the energy to, uh, to pursue life anymore. And, and there will be this, these thoughts turning towards the end of our lives. We don't want to wait until that time to remember our creator, turn to him now, right? We're not to delay in remembering that God has created us. Um, and and there's this concept of vanity that's laid out here. Uh, every, and this is a, a theme that you see throughout the, uh, yeah, this is a theme that you see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, um, this concept of vanity, that, the, that life inherently is vain apart from God, that ma- the material world in and of itself is just going to be for the here and now. Um, but the scriptures are very clear that this world is passing away, right? First John 2, this world is passing away. Um, and, and chasing after this world's pleasures and desires will do nothing but show how empty these things really are. Um, there's no physical treasure. There's no pleasure. There's nothing that will bring us true happiness. It's all vain in and of itself. Oh, there, there's certainly going to be temporary pleasures if we live for this life. There's going to be temporary pleasures. And those things are not inherently bad. But if we live for them only, they will prove to be in and of themselves worthless, right? We shouldn't idolize them. They are the pleasures of this life that are not sinful are gifts from God. But and this is really the essence of of materialism and um, and naturalism. This these concepts that are focused on uh, philosophies, right? Pagan philosophies that are focused on the here and now. In rejecting uh, any concept of the divine. And the supernatural is suppressed in these worldviews. But those are vain. They will prove to be nothing. When you've amassed massive wealth, and you've amassed big houses and cars, and, and whatever else it might be, but you've neglected your soul, Jesus says, um, what have you gained? You haven't gained anything. It's vain, right? It's vain. Jesus is very clear about these things. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, 19-21 uh, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Oh, here Jesus says that if we're consumed with this life, if our treasures are on this world and our minds are not set on heavenly treasures and living for eternity, it will reveal where our heart really is, right? Does it lie with the world and the things of this world, or does it lie with eternal things, right? 1 John 2, very clear that the world is passing away along with its lusts, right? But only he who does the will of God is going to abide forever, We are merely Christians just traveling onto the celestial city through Vanity Fair, right? By faith, looking forward, having faith in our King, Jesus Christ, walking forward through and and avoiding the things of this world as our ultimate pleasure and our ultimate security, and ultimately looking forward to our heavenly home, that great city where Jesus is. That is where our treasure is found, and that should guide us and help us to frame our, and should be really the philosophical groundwork for our entire lives. So treasures are not to be regarded uh, so much so that we lose sight of eternity. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, chapter 6 of Matthew, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So, and this is an unequivocal statement here. Jesus is saying that you cannot love money or love the pleasures of this world and love Christ. In you know, it's kind of an equal ultimacy here. You can't have a, an ultimate love for both. We can't be worldly and can't be Christlike. We can't have an allegiance to this world and an allegiance to Christ. It doesn't work. It's one or the other. And this should help us to, you know not having uh, our securities and our and our worries on this world should help us not to worry uh, about our lives in general. Jesus right after he says this, goes on uh, to say very clearly um, that we're not to worry about our those things that God is going to provide us for, right? If our heart is truly set on eternity, then we should not be filled with sinful anxiety, right? Since we are consumed with the eternal, there really is no room for worry about our material needs on this earth because our hearts are not with the material things on this world, right? If our hearts are not wrapped up in this world, then we're not going to worry as much, right? Worrying about the things of this world, about the material things of this world, shows that there are treasures in our hearts that we're not uh, putting aside for Christ as Jesus ties this directly to um, the cons you know to relying on the father to relying on God uh, as the one who provides um, so a hopeless anxiety is is so concerned with material things and is not trusting God um, so that's something we we are to avoid but that's this concept of vanity that is being presented here by uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes. So back to Ecclesiastes, and he says, more And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. Excuse me. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails, given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is summing up the, the, the entire argument that he's been presenting, or all the arguments, I should say, that he's been presenting in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, he's summing it up in two sentences. We obey God, we fear him, keep his commandments. This is our basic philosophy of life as Christians. And this really should be the basic philosophy of the entire human race, Um, But primarily, I think it applies primarily to us as Christians, that we are to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And that is our philosophy of life that guides everything that we do. It permeates everything uh, that we do on a day to day basis. Our church life, our family life, our money, how we uh, treat others, how we treat our neighbor, everything is affected by that. That is a basic philosophy. Of our life and the writer here is also saying that knowledge is a good thing right and storing up proper wisdom in our minds and wisdom in our hearts is good right and even says these words are like goads. a goad is is something that prods you on it pushes you on right it pushes you in the right direction right it pushes us forward but we also have to be careful not to simply accumulate knowledge right studying can be profitable right? But if we just study for the sake of studying and we're not applying it, then we're really wasting our time, right? You can study all about the doctrine of God that you want, doctrine of the church, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation, but if you're not applying those things, the implications of those things to your life, then you're simply wasting your time. It's vanity, right? So we have to be very careful that we're Using knowledge properly, and we're not just getting big heads for the sake of getting big heads. That's very, very easy to do, Um, especially as we're reading uh, theology books or or whatever it might be, going to seminary, whatever it might be. uh, It's easy to get big heads and become haughty and prideful, Um, but we shouldn't do that. We have to uh, apply these things properly. These things should change how we live and how we act should make us obey God more. Um, and I think that's a struggle that all of us are going to continue to deal with and, and certainly not be perfect at uh, in this life. But it's part of our sanctification process and something that uh, we have to remember. And we have to be sure that we're applying the knowledge that we have. Nothing else matters but to obey God and fear Him. That is our goal, right? That is our goal. Obeying God brings true joy to the Christian, and it's a joy for Christians to, to do those things. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 makes this very clear. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right. So there is joy in obeying God's commandments. We're not walking around, uh, you know, being like, oh, man, I got to obey God today. I mean, oh, I don't like obeying. We don't do that as Christians. It doesn't mean we're you know, perfect at doing that all the time. But our general lifestyle is one that desires to obey God. We find uh, happiness in obeying God. We should. Right. We should. It's not a burden for Christians to to obey God. A joy for us. But we just have to be careful to not divorce um obeying God with those good gifts that He has given us. There, we are to couple obedience to God while employing those things uh, that we that He's given us or our lives really are meaningless. So the question we have to ask, you know, why Why then should we live for that which is passing away? Why live for that which perishes? Why do we do that? It's because we don't really believe that God exists and that he has commanded us to honor and obey him. We don't really believe that. We don't really believe that. And you know, the Christian life, simply at a conceptual level, really isn't that difficult. And and I don't mean that they're that there won't be persecution or there's not struggles. I'm not saying that. But in terms of the the conceptual uh, things that we're to do, it's very straightforward. I guess is probably the better terminology. It's very straightforward. Um, I think that we as Christians sometimes make it difficult, right? We add our own rules. We add our own regulations. We say, oh, You know, we'll be a better Christian if you do things this way or if you do things that way, things that are not found or or implied in Scripture, but that are just my own preferences that I impose on other people, right? We make it much more difficult than we need to make it much more difficult instead of just doing what God has commanded. He's given us the sufficient word, his sufficient word, which lays out what we are supposed to be doing. That is what we're supposed to be doing not imposing our own thoughts that are not in scripture or not implied in scripture, not in the commands of God upon others. Um, we're not to do that. We're not to do that. We make our, the Christian life so difficult or even on ourselves. If it hinders us from obeying God, We have to be very, very careful about that. The Christian life is living in light of the gospel We are saved by God, not through merits of our works, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And then our job is to simply live in light of that, right? Paul said to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, right? We're to live in light of what God has done for us. That's what we're to do. That is it. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. That is it. We're to obey God, trusting in Christ Christ, by faith, believing the gospel, and letting that rule our lives. And as we are letting that rule our lives by faith, in faith alone, in Christ, in the gospel alone, then we are going to live differently, and our lives will reflect that, right? Again, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, doesn't mean there's going to be struggles, but conceptually, the Christian life is very straightforward, it's very simple, from that regard on a conceptual level it's the sum of the matter we obey god we fear him and we keep his commandments that's a christian life that's it there's nothing else to it and that's what we're going to be doing as christians until we reach that celestial city we're going to be living in accordance with god's commandments right, right. it's hard enough to obey god as he has revealed in Scripture, why in the world do we try to make it more complicated by trying to impose our own unbiblical rules on ourselves and others? It really, it really I think, can be kind of astounding that we do that, and we wonder why there can be so much uh, strife in the church. Because we're trying to live the Christian life our own way. We're trying to maybe in some way impose these things on others, and we shouldn't be doing that. We have to be very careful about that. Let's just obey God's commandments. Let's love our neighbor. Let's obey God's word. That's it. That's a Christian life. And one day we will, as if we are really Christians, reach that celestial city. And I think we want to hear uh, God say, "Well done, good and faithful servant. We have that. We have pleased our God." That's really what it, you know, we we tried, I think sometimes we try to think being radical means we're running around in the streets and, and doing all these uh, supposedly radical things, uh, running around the streets, preaching in the streets and doing all these things. And those things are not necessarily bad, um, but let's just, let's just obey God where we're at. Are we providing for our families? Are we being faithful in the house of the Lord on Sundays? Are we can, uh, giving our gifts to God's church? You know, are we um, are we walking in ways that are pleasing to God? That's what we need. That's radical. That's what it means to be radical. That's what it means to obey the word of God. That's what it means. And that's really the conclusion of the whole matter. Um, life with that purpose in mind that we are going to obey God as he is prescribed in his word um, is really... What is fulfilling, that is opposed to the vanity that we see in this world. And that's really what a biblical philosophy is, um, is to live in light of uh, God's commandments. Um, but with that, I think that's all for today. Um, and Provisionist Perfective, you guys are doing well. I see you asked a question here. Uh, what does "too late" mean on determinism? Uh, God always gets us exactly when He, uh, when He wants to, doesn't He? Uh, what I mean by "too late" is, you know, before you you're called home. Um, too late, obviously, you wouldn't be able to come back and repent uh, if you've already passed away, unless um, you believe in some weird view of the afterlife. Um, but that's what I mean by "too late," and that really doesn't. Uh, have anything against determinism. Um, and actually, uh, provisionist perspective, I'll say this, um, I would encourage you to join us for next week's episode, because next week we're going to have Dr. James Dolzell on the show, who some of you probably have heard on the show before when he talked about the doctrine of God, but we're going to be talking about divine providence, um, and I think a pretty in-depth discussion of divine providence. Um, so especially provisionist perspective, I think you guys would find this very helpful. We're going to be talking about the authorship of evil. We're going to be talking about um, the nature of evil, what is sin and how that relates to uh, the authorship of evil um, in terms of uh, when we're talking about God. So I'd encourage you all to join us. I think that'll be a very helpful discussion. Um But until then, everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for joining me for the short devotional. I hope it's been helpful and beneficial. Um, And everyone have a great Lord's Day on Sunday. Take care.